I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. So it's Tuesday, once again. Uh, last Tuesday of February, who would have thought we'd already be here? Um, welcome to the Wong Takes. Uh, Tuesday, February 27, 2018. And there wasn't um, a lot of the time that I spent watching sports this week was course the olympics which just ended two days ago and the first block of the program today is going to be about the olympics and it's, it's it was a lot of fun as per usual a lot of great stories uh that uh, nbc does a phenomenal job of showing the athletes and how they got there and just interest stories that it's not just about the athletes but it's about the people behind those athletes and the olympics are a great place to uh, even on team sports to show individual stories and uh, this every everything that these phenomenal people uh, can do. So with that said, let's jump straight in. We've got a couple of Olympic stories that I just want to talk about from the week, the final week of the Olympic, the 24th Olympiad? I want to say the 24th Olympiad. Uh, first of all, humongous shout-out, this is not the shout-out section right now, but just in general, humongous shout-out to women's cross-country skiing, uh, the U.S. team of Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall, who made huge news by winning gold in the team sprint, uh, which was actually the United States' first-ever gold medal in cross-country skiing. If you don't know, cross-country skiing is like cross-country running, just on the snow. Uh, and this particularly this particular event that they won uh, was where they have two people and they do six laps total, and each of the laps I think are around ten minutes. It's a pretty long race, and they alternate. So you need both, or you mostly just need endurance. You need to be able to fight. And you need to be you need to be able to recover quickly so that in those breaks you could really take advantage of them. Um, I think even though the U.S. as a whole had a disappointing Olympics, they undershot. Uh, their target medal count by like a good 10 medals. Uh, this made for one of the best moments on TV of the games. Uh, if you didn't see Google um, cross-country skiing, NBC announcers or something like that, but the announcers just went crazy. These guys who follow cross-country skiing, so they know what they're talking about. And that just emphasizes how big of a deal this was to to American cross-country skiing as a whole because... Um, this is something that's never been done before, even for a country that's as big as the United States. And getting over that hurdle of getting the first one uh, is only going to help this program more because it's going to inspire more people. Uh, this could be, honestly, the next sport that America falls in love with because at the Olympics, you tend to, especially in the Winter Olympics, where you have sports besides track and field and swimming and, and that, that kind of thing, you, you run into obscure sports like the biathlon or like cross-country skiing or like curling, which we'll talk about later, that you never really uh, seen before. And America loves those type of things, and that can open up an entire new market for the sport. Uh, I think regarding curling, uh, one of the, uh, I think it was Canadian, people on the Canadian team said that like America getting to the gold medal game and eventually winning it was one of the best things that could happen to the sport because, not like being selfish or anything, you just open up a whole new market, a whole new amount of people that can make the sport better. And the more people that are playing... Uh, the better the game is going to get. Um, also, this back to the cross-country skiing, it was such a great race just because it was also an American-style finish. Like, America, what? We're the land of 
the like American dream and all that. Yeah. Uh, these guys, these women were not favored to win the race, not by a long or not by a long shot. They they were going up against like these really experienced skiers that had already won medals at the games, and all they had and they had to do so much just to get in the front pack of the three, and then from there to finally take the lead in the last two or three seconds of the race. Uh, and Jesse Diggins, who kind of got a shot at redemption in this race, because she, she came in with pretty high expectations, um, at least from what I saw, but she didn't she hadn't won any medals so far, and this was really a chance for her to say, look, I'm legit, watch me go up and just outrun or outski uh, one of the best skiers in the world uh, from, I think it was the Swedish side. So just a remarkable finish, uh, something that uh, America did and will continue to embrace and watch out for American cross-country skiers in 2022 because the, the Olympiads of tomorrow might only be like 11 or 12 now, and this will only motivate them further. Uh, another shout-out, sorry, this is not the shout-out section, the shout-out section is later. Uh, women's hockey, American hockey, uh, American women's hockey, even though the men's side didn't do so well, the women won gold uh, beating Canada in a shootout. Now, this is remarkable for a couple of reasons. First of all, Canada had won the last four gold medals uh, in this event, this hockey tournament. And even if the U.S. team is one of the better teams in the world, it's, it's just surprising that you get the chance to play these guys who have been on this stage four consecutive times, and, and you can still come through and beat them, and beat them in a clutch situation. It wasn't like uh, it was a convincing win where they had control from the start, and it was like that. It was a... It was a Back-and-forth game throughout. Canada uh, took the lead pretty early, or the U.S. took the lead pretty early on. Canada came back and took the lead, and then the U.S. tied it uh, with about six minutes to go, I believe. But it's just, it's it's crazy how they can perform in this pressure situation. Uh, also, the goalie for the United States is only 20 years old. Her name is Maddie Rooney, and she really came through in the shootout. Uh, I think it was only giving up two goals to Canada on six shots. Uh, the pressure that you have to deal with, talked about it last week, I think, but just pressure of knowing, look, it's all up to me. Like, it's up to my shooters to some extent, but it's basically up to me. And I have to save as many shots as I can. It's something that I don't think many people could do, and she's only 20 years old. She's going to have a bright future wherever uh, she goes next. Uh, And this was another performance that could inspire a lot of people because this U.S. team talked about pretty frequently how they were influenced by the 1998 team which won uh the gold medal at Nagano uh and that was the last US team to win the gold medal before Canada rolled off their four straight in 0206 10 and 14 uh so in 20 years I wouldn't be surprised if future American hockey players see this team this team of supposed underdogs and embrace that uh if Canada like goes back to their dominance they're going to embrace that and see look this is possible even against a humongous juggernaut we can do it and that's the power of sport. Uh, sport has the power to inspire, and that's what this team accomplished. Uh, another huge American comeback story. I think this came one day after the women's hockey gold. You know, the U.S. wasn't doing too well, and then these back-to-back wins kind of boosted everyone's spirits going uh, into the closing ceremony. Uh, the United States curling team, captained by John Schuster, who's become a household name the last couple of days, uh, won gold by beating Sweden in the gold medal game 10-7. to This was a humongous... Uh, if the women's hockey was a redemption, this was an even humongous redemption. In round-robin play, which was nine games and the top four advanced to the playoff or the tournament, uh, the U.S. started out two and four. 
Um, but then they would proceed to win their next three games in a round robin play, including one against Canada, who were the defending gold medalists, to get to, just to get to the playoffs. Then they had to beat Canada again in the semifinals. And then they had to beat Sweden, who had the number one player in the world uh, on their side and throwing the last few rocks. Um, just crazy to think about how much they had to do to get to this point. Just the odds are totally stacked against them. Plus, this guy, Schuster, has been, had been ridiculed for years before becoming a national hero in the last few days. as kind of like a choker. Uh, so this, just just a crazy time or shot at redemption for him personally, just to say, look, I'm going to prove on the world stage, on the biggest stage, on like the only stage in curling in four years, that, that I can do this. And he came through. Uh, I don't know if you saw the highlight. It was 5-5. Five to five. Okay, so imagine curling a new sport again. Uh, imagine curling has these ends. They're like innings, essentially. So it was, and they have 10 innings. So imagine it's the eighth inning, and you're tied at five. And he has a chance to hit a five-run homer to give his team, to basically double his team's score and put the game out and get the gold medal, more or less. And that's exactly what he did. He knocked out two of Canada's rocks and then put his own in, along with four others, giving them a total of five. And you don't have to understand the scoring to watch the highlight and understand the excitement that they're feeling with the shot that they just pulled off, and the awe as well. Uh, this is something that doesn't really happen. I think it's maybe the third time that someone's put up a score of more than four in an end. Um, nothing, and it's, it's almost like this team was destined or something. I think they were calling it the Miracurl, uh, which is a funny pun on Miracle, get it? Uh, so... Just wow. Uh, this could also help the popularity of curling in the United States. Um, it, this type of sport is never going to be in the mainstream just because it's not something that's embedded in the American psyche. Curling is, and then like a, like the majority of the country can't curl because just because of the climate. But um, the country embraces winners, and that's what they're going to do with Schuster and his team. Uh, and curling clubs will experience a massive spike in popularity uh, probably over the next couple of months, and whether that spike stays is probably no, but you'll probably get a new fan base, and just as, as a whole, once again, America um, is in wins curling, opens up a whole new market and everything, so that's great for curling. Uh, another thing that's not an American thing, actually, I'm going to go off the grid. Uh, Russian, The Russians... And the team, or sorry, the individual figure skating event. Uh, Russians in this event won gold and both gold and silver with Alina Sakitova winning the gold and Evgenia Medvedeva winning the silver. Uh, I thought this personally was interesting and worth including just because it highlights, I guess, how small of an opportunity the, the Olympics is. Medvedeva was the big favorite coming into this, or not the, or well, six months ago is what they kept saying on the broadcast. She was the humongous favorite going into this event. And yet one little injury later and the rise of this, or this little 15-year-old. And Venuva's only 18. This is the first time she's been eligible for the Olympics. You have to be, I think, at least 15. And yet, and she's, and yet this may be her last chance because there's a 15-year-old skater that's already beaten her and is only going to get better and more mature and stronger and she's she's going to get older and stronger too, but she's already 18 and already moving out past her prime. Um, she had one opportunity to do better than Zagitova and put up a score that was one point, about one point, less than 
um, Zagitova, and now she may not get a gold medal ever. Uh, I think that's why it's such a big deal the Olympics are, for, even though maybe in America the Olympics don't get their dues, for, for athletes from many countries where they don't play in sports that have domestic leagues or are mainstream sports and where world championships are only one every four years and they're not nearly as prestigious, the Olympics is the one place and the one time you get to show off what you can do and bring awareness to yourself and to your sport. And I think that's why the Olympics is such a big deal. And it's just, it's crazy. We don't think about it like Chloe Kim, 17, a young star. But like based on the the level of talent that's coming out, churn, that, that, that countries are churning out, Norway, the U.S., Sweden, Russia, uh, it's just remarkable how little of an opportunity you have you just have one olympics to get your job done uh unless you're guy unless you're like an immortal like sean white but it's i feel bad for medvedeva um but uh she had one shot and didn't take advantage so it's, it'll be interesting to see if we if we see her in beijing in 2022 it'd be a fun storyline to track so those are what the main things i wanted to talk about um of course we have shout outs now uh, Olympic-style shout-outs, actually, because there are some things that I would like to commend. Uh, I talked about it once or twice in the main topic. But, like, Norway, come on, the highest medal total of any country at the Olympics, 39. Uh, according to 538, they blew past their prediction um, by a ton. And it's funny, because I've been seeing the storyline prop up. It's like, Norway just dominated this Olympics. Like, they medaled in, like, basically everything. And yet... They're, one of the things that they preach in that country is modesty, and this goes against their modesty. They almost they they can't gloat, even though we we all want them to gloat. Like, come on, Norway! But like, it's just it's great how this this country gets all this attention, um, and can really show off what they've got. Uh, another big shout out to LGBT athletes that participated in these games. Believe it or not, in the sport of figure skating, we actually had our first ever um, openly gay skater in the time that he is skating, uh, Adam Rippon, who kind of, who uh, essentially like won the hearts of the country. Um, too often, um, LGBT people get kind of put in a box, like you have to be this. But in these Olympics, we really got to see Adam's personality. We got to see Gus Kenworthy's personality, even though he didn't do as well as he would have hoped. Um, and it's nice that they can spread their message of inclusion and everything uh, on such big of a stage with everyone uh, there, even people where LGBT people don't have as many rights as they do in America. Uh, another shout out to Terry Gannon, Tara Lipinski, and Johnny Weir, who, although they can be, uh, particularly Tara and Johnny, even though they can be divisive at times or controversial at times, uh, I think they to some they're partially at least partially responsible for revitalizing uh the figure skating coverage and the awareness of figure skating in the world just with their energy the energy that they brought to the rink every day uh it sounds like like a cliche but just just that wow factor that it factor they have that together and the chemistry is undeniable and you can see it and you can see that they're excited for the athletes when they do well and they're not afraid to criticize the athletes when they don't and in a sport where most people come in, are coming in with not really much of an outside opinion of the knowledge, and they said this, it helps to be brutal sometimes, or not brutal, but like really straightforward, because then you, you people can get more of a feel of what they're watching. And I think that helps. And Terry Gannon, side note, I did not know that he was doing figure skating. Um, if 
or he was on the 1983 NC State Championship team that was featured in the ESPN 30 for 30 Survive in Advance and was coached by Jim Valvano, who now has his own uh, foundation and all. Uh, just huge shout out to him uh, for for really becoming a the main play by play guy and having a stalwart that we can that we can watch. And he's not intrusive. He's not getting in the way of Tara and Johnny. He's just letting them do their thing while still being a partner with them. It never feels like he's relegated to the sidelines. Um, another shout out to NBC for hosting really a successful Olympics. Uh, we, there were only really like one or two really, really stupid comments. Uh, no humongous controversies they had to work out. No blackouts. Uh, the only thing that people really criticized them for was sometimes cutting back and forth, uh, between events. But honestly, sometimes with the volume of things that happen, like with the like downhill runs combined with figure skating, and when you're putting all of this live uh, and making it better for the making it a better experience for the viewer, it's really it's a really tough decision. And the majority of the time, their cutaways were put in the right place, and everything was done at the right time. Maybe once or twice they messed up, but I think having this live was a good ex- test run for them, and it was a successful test run for them. And we might see this again in the Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, which I think is pretty close to the same time zone as Pyeongchang in 2022, or 2020, and also perhaps the Beijing Olympics uh, in 2022. So great job by NBC. Finally, a shout out to South Korea and Pyeongchang for hosting, or for putting together a controversy-free Olympics. There were no uh, major problems with the hosting. There was no... There were no real diseases going around during the games. Of course, there was the outbreak of norovirus beforehand, but nothing really major during the games. Nothing where the athletes had to be sheltered, no major safety hazards. Uh, just a great job that allowed us to focus on the sports because that's what you always want to see when you when you watch the Olympics is you want to focus on the sport uh, and the athletes. Also, the Olympic truce stayed together, uh, thank goodness, uh, with North Korea and all of that, it seems like there are always scandals heading into uh, the games. Like, in 2014, Sochi with the political situation in Russia, Rio de Janeiro with the Zika virus and uh, everything, Beijing with not having an adequate number of facilities in 08. But they, these countries always seem to put it together, even if they're left in a financial hole. Uh, article about that on 538, the financial cost of the Olympics, highly, highly recommended reading. Um, but still, even while the time everyone was here, they put together a wonderful Olympics. Uh, they even fended off some hacking efforts from Russia and didn't have their system totally compromised. Um, so let's hope it can be the same in, in Japan in two years and the same in Beijing in four. Those are your shout outs for the Olympics. Now, the other humongous topic of the week. I don't think we really need to have any more topics besides this in the quick take. This was this rocked the college basketball world. Um, an investigation by Yahoo Sports that has unfolded over the course of the week revealed the ex- quote expenditures of prominent former NBA agent, agent Andy Miller, his former associate Christian Dawkins, and his agency ASM Sports. They include expense reports and balance sheets that list cash advances as well as entertainment and travel expenses for high school and college prospects and their families. End quote humongous no-no with the NCAA. You cannot, you are not supposed to provide anything for players. You're not even supposed to, like, give players a free lunch. Uh, so this report 
and the fallout from it is going to have humongous ramifications once the verdicts get handed down. If you look at some of the schools involved in these payments to players, it's like teams like Duke, North Carolina, Texas, Kentucky, Michigan State, Arizona, USC, Alabama, big name schools. These are just like these. I think these teams are mostly NCAA tournament teams. Uh, some of these are blue bloods like Duke, UNC, Kentucky, Michigan State. These are the four teams in the Champions Classic at the beginning of the year. These are the teams that attract the biggest name stars. And these are the teams that are getting busted for or supposedly busted for paying their players. Um, and there are also players from the past and present, uh, big names that this organization, ASM Sports, tried to loan money to. Players like Miles Bridges, who's at Michigan State and leading one of the best teams in the country, DeAndre Ayton the big man from Arizona that's going to go pretty high in the draft, I would have to believe, and just has been dominating the Pac-12. And then you've got former players who are now in the NBA. Dennis Smith Jr., who's the high-flying dunker uh, in Dallas, that's doing well. Bam Adebayo, who I think is on the heat now uh, and is playing a big part. Markel Fultz, the number one pick by Philadelphia, who is now injured, but was a, or sorry, or from Washington, who but was a big story uh, in college, and everyone said he was one of the best players uh, in the country last year. Now, there's so many things to talk about from this story, but I guess I want to bring it out to the bigger picture, I think, because I know this is the behavior, like, this behavior, the NCAA is trying to prevent teams from providing any sort of illegal benefits, or they define what's illegal, but providing any sort of benefits to college athletes, but the whole system is just so impractical. I mean, people have to know this is going on. Like, how are these big schools in a world that relies on essentially this being a meritocracy? How are the biggest schools supposed to attract players? Like, making recruiting trips isn't often is not enough. How is a player going to choose between five schools that make or that make the same recruiting trips? Like, especially if there's a school that's really desperate for a player and the player's family is poor, what else are you going to do? And it's such low-hanging fruit. Like, what if you have the opportunity to pay this player even, like, uh, just a quadruple-figure sum and know that that player is for sure going to go to your school? Like, why wouldn't you do that? And it would take a humongous investigation for you to get caught. And you know the risks are big, but the demands, or I mean the rewards, this player can make you billions of dollars just from awareness. Like, imagine the media exposure that a guy like Trey Young has brought to Oklahoma and by extension the money and sponsorships and everything that he's brought to that school. And those are not just immediate benefits. Like, the player might only be there for a year, but the sponsorships that can last from that, the reputation that can last from that, the championships that can last from that, those are the things that really entice schools to pay players. And un unless you do some kind of legalization, some kind of paying players, just based on the revenue that happens, this, this type of behavior is going to keep continuing. There's no way to prevent this from stopping to happen because what happens if if you have te fewer teams paying players because they're afraid of these punishments is then you get the idea like look now fewer teams are paying players uh fewer teams are paying players so like now sorry sorry phone fewer teams are paying players so now the teams that want to pay players are going to be even more enticed to pay because now they know we have less competition uh, we have less competition, so now we're more likely to do it. And that's just going to keep continuing the cycle, and then more and more teams are going to do it, and there's going to be another crackdown. Fewer teams will do it, more teams will do it, crackdown. 
some some type of rule change. I'm in favor of paying players. I mean, I know it's against amateurism, which makes people want to like not. They don't like the term amateurism, but at this point, it's not good to do what's ideal because what's ideal isn't working. You have to do what is practical, and that is pay players. Um, now, people would argue that like paying players, oh, isn't that going to be like really hard to put in place? Like, who do you pay? What if a player does more than others? Um, but it's hard to know how effective paying players is going to be or how it's going to turn out. But look, honestly, anything is better than what we have now. Uh, what we have now is not going to work. What we have now is a system of corruption and a system of scandal that is only going to continue as long as these guys aren't paid. Uh, you see people, I think it was Nigel Hayes who was holding up a sign uh, a few years ago. He went to Wisconsin and he's like, look, I make billions of dollars or millions of dollars for the university, but like I can't pay for lunch. Like... Just the hypocrisy of that is ridiculous, and the NCAA, with all of their power, uh, has to do something. And these scandals are just going to keep popping up, and sanctions are going to keep being handed down until something changes. So that is my ruling on or opinion on the NCAA scandal. Now, ooh, the quick take, fun one. The NFL Competition Committee, because they've been changing the catch rule rules that debated Des Bryant play versus Packers a few years ago was actually a catch. Um, yeah. So a few years ago, this was what really sparked major interest in the catch rule. Des Bryant caught a pass, the NFC championship or, or an NFC divisional round against green Bay caught the ball. I think he might've taken a step, but when he landed, he reached for the end zone and then the ball got free for like a half a second. And they said, that's not a catch because he didn't survive. Uh, the ground, and yet now everyone is saying that the rule should be changed, and the competition committee has changed ruling uh, to, or says they want to simplify the rule, and I was actually talking with a friend about uh, the catch rule today, and I think, I, I talked about the catch rule a few episodes ago, but I just want to kind of go over it again. It's easy to say that the catch rule is bad, I mean, everyone agrees that the catch rule is bad. But there's a kind of nuance to the catch rule where it makes it really hard to come up with a uniform uh, solution because um, I was talking and someone's like, what if you just make it so as soon as they have control and put two feet down, uh, then it's a catch? And that seems good in precedent. But if you start to dig a little deeper, you notice why like the survive the ground rule is put in place. Because let's say um, let's say a guy catches the ball, or not catches the ball, he, he controls the ball, puts two feet down, but like literally right after that happens he drops the ball or someone punches it out of his hands and like immediately after he gets control like everyone would say that's an incomplete pass because if you make it a complete pass then the player who knocked it out would be forcing a fumble and that we don't know if the player or actually perhaps an even better example is let's say a player catches the ball or controls the ball for a little bit but he hits the ground a half second later and the ball pops out it's pretty clear that he didn't have possession of the ball, or that shouldn't be a catch, because even though he controlled the ball for a little period of time, as soon as he hit the ground, the ball came out. Should that be a fumble? That's what happens if you make it so that as soon as you control the ball, it's a catch. So what you have to do is try to encompass a situation. That's where the other controversial wording of, quote-unquote, a football move comes in, 
that's what determ that's why you need that ruling or that that wordage in there because then it determines when the player uh can or has enough had control enough of the ball to not be deemed a runner uh so or to be deemed a runner and being able to fumble the ball not being able to not fully make a completed catch so i still kind of uh stand by the rule the opinion that it should be a catch if you are able to hold the ball and say get a knee down um and or sorry not a knee like an elbow down or something like that because if an elbow hits and the ball comes out then then it shouldn't be a catch but if the elbow comes down and it does and then this way and also it should be also that the ball can't like touch the ground throughout this process because then it's clearly also not a catch. I think everyone kind of can agree even though it can be controvert or it can be hard to see sometimes that a ball hits the ground it's not a catch. So it's going to be convoluted. I don't believe that the NFL can actually make this real simpler. Uh, I think it's too complicated and nuanced to make it as such. But it's going to be a fun experience to watch them try. Thank you so much for listening to the Wong Takes as usual. Uh, don't forget to sand send in fan questions at bit.ly slash the long takes. Uh, don't forget to check out the website, bit.ly slash the long takes. Email the long takes at gmail.com. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the long takes. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. Rate the podcast on iTunes. I think we're up to six ratings, so let's keep that number going up. Uh, also, check it out on Google Play. If you are listening to this like on the website right now and you can't access it on Google Play, just let me know. Uh, I'll try to work it out. Google Play is was occasionally kind of annoying with getting the links going. Uh, But thank you so much for listening, and of course, I will see you next week.